Steve, are you ready to learn how to backpack? I am, dude. I'm all over that. Yeah. <laughs> I need some tips. <laughs> <laughs> so this article popped up in Backpacker Magazine, which I don't subscribe to and normally don't follow. I, I forget. I just saw my post a link to it. It might have been actually on the, the EXO um, user group on Facebook, I think is where I first saw it. But it's 100 essential skills every backpacker should know. And uh, I thought it would be fun to talk through this on a TS ep- TSS episode. And at first I was thinking, all right, I'll go through this list. You go through this list separately. We'll pick like our top, you know, skills out of the 100, our top tips or whatever and talk about them. But um, we didn't have time to prepare. So we're just going to wing it and go through this episode uh, looking at this article. Yeah, when you sent it to me last week, I just like I was, I was on my phone. I just scrolled through it real quick. I was like, "There's like legit good little tips in here," um, and it's those little tips that you like, you know, um, that you just gain over time. I mean, I always talk about backpacking have a, a like a very uh, fast learning curve, right? Like within your first four trips, you're gonna get like learn eighty percent of the stuff you need to know, and then over the following years, you chip away at. Um, just little tiny things that make life easier when you're back there. And so I, I briefly scrolled through this and it's been last week, but I remember going, dude, this is like legit, you know, out of these hundred tips, there's 50 of them that like, heck yeah, it's a great, you know, that's something that we've never talked about on the podcast or whatever. So let's, let's do this. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Um, so I guess we should say as well in the show notes, uh, we'll have a link to this article so you can pull it up as we're going through it. Obviously you can pull it up later after the fact, but if you want to see the full, um, 100 tips, we're not going to hit everyone. We'll just kind of, kind of scroll through this and hit some highlights or at least what stands out to us, but hit the, the full article, just check out the, the show notes, um, the description I should say on this podcast and you'll have the link there, but one that's right at the top is fire starters. Um, they mention making your own out of dryer lint and candle wax. And then they mention an easier option, which is cotton balls coated in Vaseline, which is something that I've done. I think you've done as well in the past, the whole cotton ball trick. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, it works great. Drives my, uh, wife nuts. Cause I don't know what we have Vaseline for, but everyone's fine. <laughs> I raid her cotton balls, you know, like makeup remover. And I got this big giant mess, you know, but I, I do, it's like every three years I do it. I just make up like 20 of them and it's, I so rarely use them, but, um, they are impressive. Like if I, I remember when I first did one, I, um, yeah, just, you know, so roll a cotton ball, like a little one inch by one inch cotton ball up in petroleum jelly. And then I, I just put it on the concrete on my patio and lit that thing and it burned, pretty good for like 90 seconds or something like that. I mean, it was a legit, it's an easy, legit a minute easy. Yeah. Yeah. And I've used them to start fires and, um, some pretty wet conditions, you know, immediately one jumps to mind. I was, um, it was, uh, we were backpacking in and a foot of snow and then got to the top of the mountain, you know, and it was, we were all just soaking wet and literally just got underneath a tree late morning and lit a fire. And you know, that I pulled that cotton ball fire starter starter out and, got it going right away and it was uh yeah t- definitely handy to have something like that laying around yeah yeah i usually carry just a small ziploc bag with i'll start with maybe 10 of them in there and obviously as i get down and use more just replenish it but really light easy to pack don't make a big um mess keeping them in a baggie so that's a that's a good tip for sure uh let's see scroll down steve what's the next one that hits you there's a few things yeah. on there that Aren't too yeah, applicable in permits. Yeah, skip some stuff. Um, pack the right amount of food. Yeah, 
Hikers, especially beginners, worry so much about packing enough to eat, they often overdo it. Lay out the rations and, and all meals and snacks for each day. Uh, so that's definitely something we've talked about quite a bit is is it's really critical. And I, I just base – I shoot for, depending on the trip, you know, 3,500 calories per day. If I know it's going to be super physical and or um, also sometimes the opposite. If I know it's like a, not a super demanding hunt, uh, I'm willing to pack a little bit more weight, you know, just to have some more snacks with me. Um, but it's, it's the, uh, the longer trips. Once you start going five plus nights, um, you know, an extra four ounces of food per day starts adding up to a pound, two pounds in the pack that you're packing extra that you don't need to be. So that's when it gets to me even more critical to, to really dial it in and count your calories and it doesn't take long. Like I said, I do it why I build one day. Um, so I just have literally have my phone calculator out, build one day and then just repeat uh, you know, I'll have a few variances in there so that each day is you know, somewhat different. Um, but then I'll just repeat that exact day for, you know, if I'm going for a five day trip, I just put, put five baggies together, throw them in the pack. And, um, yeah, when you're out there, it's just, it's really easy just to grab one bag and that's your, your limit for the day. And, uh, well, you don't overeat, you don't undereat. Um, I think it's super important not to undereat, making sure you're getting your calories. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Just that packing each day in its own bag um gallons a block or a quart a block depending is really important as you said helps your ration it keeps helps you keep an eye on making sure you're eating enough not eating too much having everything segmented um that tip alone on packing per day is gonna be really important and then yeah somewhere between three to four thousand calories a pound and a half to two pounds of food um those are just rough numbers to go off of that can be really helpful for sure um, it also talks in there about keeping stocked up on freeze dried meals throughout the year. Uh, that'll help you be ready for last minute trips, which is really cool. It's actually kind of funny too. My wife was joking when this whole COVID thing very first started, you know, and people were talking about the stores running out of stuff. She's like, well, between all the meat we have in the freezer from your fishing and hunting, and then all of the freeze dried food that you have to prepare for trips, we're in pretty good shape already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, they have a good, good info here on flying with gear, which is something we've talked about, but it basically talks about things you should check, things you should carry on, things you should leave behind, um, things to leave behind. They mentioned specifically stove fuel and bear spray. That's obviously going to apply to us as well as things you just want to buy when you get there. Cause there's no way, um, with flight, whether you're checked or carry on, is just not allowed for those items. It does specifically mention carry-on, sticking with boots, electronics, and anything fragile. I would say that in your carry-on, I always think through worst-case scenario, making sure I have what I need to at least start a trip. Um, So -hmm. if your luggage happens to get lost, obviously there's things you can't control like a weapon. But in your carry-on, do you have the right clothing? Do you have even a first day or two of food? That type of thing where... If you're getting your checked bags two days late, what, how efficient and useful can you spend those first couple of days? And that's going to vary based on what that trip looks like for you. But it's a, at least something to think through. Um, and then they talk specifically about in your checked bag, obviously, your sharp items for us. That would include weapons. They, they don't mention that in Backpacker Magazine, but <laughs> they're talking about ice axes and crampons and that type of thing. Um, any other quick tips on flying with gear that you think through, Steve? Mm, 
No, I think that's pretty much it. Like I said, yeah, it's, um, I've always just keep the expensive, if say you're flying to Alaska, like binoculars, spotting scope, um, you know, cameras, stuff like that. That's with me in my pack. And then a change of clothes, like you said, just in case you, you get there. And then, and then, yeah, everything else just jam in a duffel bag and, and then weapon the, that big one on, uh, if you're flying with a gun, make sure you have a lock for every hole in the case. Um, that one's popped up often. Depends on the TSA agent. It's kind of subjective on uh, if they can somehow unlatch it and like you know get their finger in between it. Then that's not you know that doesn't pass. So it has to be um, you know no matter if you undo all the latches, you cannot pry it up. Is basically their rule. So I think it's safe. Uh, if you have a gun case that has four little holes for locks, just put four locks on it and you're good to go. Yeah, we we chatted about that. Man, I can't remember the episode number, and I was trying to find it, but can't. But basically, in August, um, we did a whole in-depth episode on traveling, specifically flying um, with a bow and or a rifle, and kind of talked through um, all those points there. So that's a good in-depth episode to check out. Um, they talk about fixing a leaky tent, um, looking at using sealants for that. Um, do you... I guess it depends, Steve, on the fabric or if it's quote-unquote factory seam sealed. But what's been your experience with seam sealing on tents? Honestly, I, I, the only one I've ever done is um, back in like 2013. I bought a tarp tent, Moment DW, um, and they're a USA-made tent. And I think to save money, they don't seal the seams, which is you know common, I think, with a lot of the USA stuff. Uh, and so they sent out a little kit that you could add for like five bucks that came with a little foam paintbrush and, and this, the seam seal stuff. And so you just set it up in your yard, painted all the seams and, and called it good. Um, so that's my only experience on actually sealing seams. I've never had a tent that, you know, I've owned for, I mean, you'd have to use a lot. And if it's a quality tent, it, it's gotta be five to five years of heavy use or 10 years probably before you need to go back and seal seams. So um, I have, um, along the same line though, there's a stuff called aqua seal, which I believe is kind of the same as seam grip. It's a, it's a jelly, um, uh, you know, it's kind of a clear jelly that comes out of the tube and then it, it, um, it seals up awesome. And I've, I have used that stuff a lot over the years to fix just random things and not necessarily, um, I've used it. It works great on sleeping pads. Uh, I've used it to fix holes there cause it's like a permanent fix versus a patch where it's kind of glued on could come off um i've used it to fix holes in tents uh, like tent floors things like that so it's been a great uh i did a, a miraculous patch on a pair of waders one year on a float trip i was doing it was like a three inch rip but i was able to put it back together with that so the only thing the only downside of that aqua seal stuff is you needs a good 24 hours and like be in a somewhat warm environment to to like cure and, and dry fully yeah but once it does it's like i had a my old thermarest near air pad like a year one of owning it you know i put a good hole in it patched it up and i mean it lasted like another six years and that patch never leaked so um i'm trying what's the name of the um the tape i'm, I'm tenacious drawing a blank. tape no is it tenacious yeah it is yeah, tenacious, tenacious tape, tape. Yeah. that's what i was waiting to talk about yep it's good yeah, stuff tenacious man. tapes good stuff except for and on the caribou hunt this year like I remember the um, we got a hole in that big Hilberg tent I had, and we that tenacious tape like wouldn't whatever the temperature or whatever it was it would not freaking stick to the tent. I remember trying to patch that up. So, uh, but yeah, this stuff is awesome. And then I'll do one more duct tape. 
always have um, Gorilla Tape, the black duct tape called Gorilla Tape. That stuff's amazing. I wrap that. Um, I wrap that around the lighter. I got like sometimes I'll have like a little Sharpie in my pack just if I ever need to like write a note, a survival note on something, you know. Um, and I'll wrap that, the handle that little Sharpie with with uh, the black duct tape, uh, the grill tape, and that stuff I've used to. It's incredibly, uh, incredibly strong. <laughs> in fact, it's holding the uh, um, the mirror on my truck uh, <laughs> when we were in Portland this year. <laughs> it's the yeah, dude still rocking. Oh Literally, man, uh, I forgot we were, about that. Uh, I was backing the trailer up and um, that we had to haul the trailer over to Portland with our booth in it. And then I was backing it up in between some really tight trees and, and wasn't paying attention. And my mirror caught the tree and like basically ripped it off, pulled out some gorilla tape out of the back of the truck and I taped that on. And it, that was early February. And here we are yeah. April. And it's still like that thing's rocking, man. It's holding my mirror on the side of my truck. So, uh, <laughs> funny. so it's good stuff. <laughs> yeah. A good place. If you're looking to carry tape, like you said, I used to wrap like a business card or something like that. Cause I was just easy to throw in my repair kit. Another good thing is you can wrap it around your trekking poles. If you're the type of guy who always has trekking poles on a trip, you could just wrap it around there. Um, that's a good place to store it. And then while I'm thinking of wrapping on my bipod, just a random pro tip. We've talked before about, um, you know, taping the end of your barrel to keep moisture out for a rifle hunt. Um, I'll either use electrical tape for that or um, use like one of those foamy earplugs. But basically, I'll always keep a few wraps of electrical tape on my bipod legs. So that's another way if I'm rifle hunting, I have my bipod and then I have electrical tape to always tape up my barrel or, or share with guys if needed. So that's just a, another random way to store useful stuff like that. Yeah. It's out of the way, but it was there when you need it. Picking that tip up from me, I think on the caribou hunt last year, I was, saw that. I was like, oh, that's a great idea. And somebody happened to have a roll of electrical tape. So I wrapped it up and yeah, it's super handy to have for sure. Yep. Um, they have a good tip on waterproofing your map. If you guys happen to carry paper maps, I know a lot of guys don't, they just talk about packing it in a bag. Just another random thought it made me think of, um, in the past I've used a company called MyTopo. I think it's mytopo.com, but just a random shout out to them. Don't know anything about them in, in terms of like a company, but I have used their stuff. You can print, uh, really cool paper maps on there and they actually have a waterproof material print option. So if you're the type of guy who likes a paper map, um, whether that's for in the field use or preseason use, um, I would just check out my topo cause you can print some really cool stuff from there and they have uh, very durable and waterproof paper you can use. Um, they have good info and a video, Steve, on loading your backpack. Have you ever, uh, had any experience loading a pack before? Uh, very little. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I didn't watch the video. I don't know what's in there, but yeah, I'm sure it's, um, yeah. Hit the Sounds like it's on uh, load distribution. Yeah. Uh, load distribution, yeah. Um, light light items in the bottom. Um, you know, we've talked about this a thousand times. Light items in the bottom. Your bulkier, heavier items in the middle of the pack, and then I usually top the the, the top of it with food um, and the, kind of the light clothing, like my puffy jacket, go on top, things like that. So um, it's pretty much it. And then we're you know, we've, uh, um, anti stuff sacks, just throw everything in there loose and, and let the, the pack kind of compress up your gear. Uh, that works great. Um, they talk about divvying up group gear it says, don't be a hero. No one should carry more than 30% of his or her body weight, which is funny for hunters, but it does talk about splitting up tent body and stakes, fly in poles, that type of thing. You can split cookware, food, fuel, um, 
yeah, again, just keep in mind, we've talked about this in the past, but uh, simple stuff where not only how you divvy up gear amongst yourself um, as a group, whether that's just two guys or multiple guys, but even thinking through what is truly needed um, in, in terms of the just in case items. So if there's this far off, like, oh, we better have this just in case, is it sufficient for just one person in the group to have that? Or simple things like, um, one that comes to mind is the first few times we used to do a week-long hunt, um, both my buddy Jared and I would each carry a secondary jet boil um, fuel canister. And really on a week, we can probably get away with just the one, but it was always good reassurance for a week-long trip to have an extra. We realized we both don't need to have an extra. We're never going to run through four canisters, so... Now, um, if anything, one of us will just carry an extra. So that type of thing. So just think through not only how you distribute gear if you're going on a trip with someone else, but those kind of just-in-case items. And can just one of you have that uh, just-in-case item? Yeah. We, we've we actually, when we first started backpacking, like Lenny and I would divvy up gear. But as we kind of got lighter and lighter and got our systems dialed in, um, all of us now just basically are self-sufficient. Um, and we found that it just gives us a little bit more flexibility, not so much elk hunting, but definitely mule deer hunting too. It's not uncommon at all for us to like go in together as a group of two or three guys, four guys, and then split up into to twos or, you know, um, we're just not afraid to like, if it gets dark and you're on this ridge and I'm not that ridge that we don't, you know, we're not going to go hike and meet up that night. Um, so I'll just like, uh you know, I'll check in with you in the morning, you know, usually we've got in reaches or a radio or something like that, where we could at least get a hold of each other and say, Oh, you know, I'm going to stay here where I'm at. So something we've, uh, the opposite of that advice, um, is just to be self-sufficient gives you a self a little bit more flexibility, but that elk hunting, you're pretty much sticking with your buddy. So it's kind of irrelevant in that yeah. regard. And you're just trying to get away from Lenny snoring. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's, that's the main reason we started using one man tents to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah another good tip which again we've talked about but just being able to get out the door faster is their tip and it talks about having the essential items kind of stocked ready to go and then also keeping bins to keep gear organized um shoot i was even thinking of that we just got back from a family camping trip of how much easier it's gotten over the years even with kids and four people and more stuff that I'm used to with backpacking, but just the way you organize your gear at home and having a master checklist makes it much easier to get out and execute a trip on the fly, not worry about forgetting things and making sure you have what you need. So same thing, think through for your hunting, for your backpacking, how you store the gear and then how that affects the way you pack for hunt. And then even the items we've mentioned previously about having you know, those extras at the truck with you, um, those just in case items, maybe not packed in your pack, but at least back at the truck. Maybe that's an alternate shelter. Maybe that's your rain gear. Maybe that's tools to fix your weapon, that type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I just, I was thinking of all I could do is when I think about that stuff is just laugh at like Jason and Tyler, my, you know, two buddies that I hunt with a lot that are complete opposite, just train wrecks and and Jason's always the night before just scrambling all over the place or calling like, Hey, did I leave this in your truck? You know, cause he hasn't looked for it since the last hunting trip. And, um, it's, yeah, it's funny to be, it's so much easier just to plan ahead, be organized and, 
uh, like like we talked about here recently, of have your pack completely loaded when you leave the house. So when you get to the trailhead, it's a matter of slapping on your boots, grabbing your pack and your weapon, and off you go. And there's there's no work to be done, and, and you're so much less likely to forget something. You know, simple things like a fork or a headlamp or whatever that, um, you know, kind of make a big deal when you're out there that you don't have them. Uh, they're just way easier to pack it ahead of time at home. Mm-hmm. What's next that stands out for you, Steve? Um, uh, you know, the next one is just talking about acclimate better, acute mountain sickness. It doesn't really apply to me living out here in the West, but, um, I haven't, you know, I guess been lucky. I have never had to deal with that. Um, we have a great episode way back when on, um, I don't remember the guy we had on, but I know we were talking about acute mountain sickness and, um, he had some great tips in there. Uh, I remember it'd be worthwhile for anyone who's concerned about that to go back and listen to that episode yeah yeah one strategy Um, that we've always done being flatlanders who kind of go out west um typically we'll split the drive for two reasons one is just time and the other is being able to get a night a good night's sleep at altitude Um, so if we're hunting colorado for example you know, we'll break that up to where we tackle the majority of the trip, but then we get a night in a hotel at elevation that gets us a good night's rest. Don't only have then have a few hours to finish the drive the next day instead of getting to the trailhead and being completely dead tired from say an 18 hour drive, you've split that up. You get a good night's rest at elevation. You're starting fresh. That's always been helpful. It's going to depend on your time, how much time you have. Does that extra night matter? But I would say that even if you were to drive, straight through to the trailhead and start hiking you're probably going to be less efficient in the long run in terms of how you're spending your time in the field than basically starting a little bit more acclimated and a little bit more rested so just something to think about um that previous episode on altitude sickness uh is episode 140 so yeah if you guys want to tune into that and kind of hear um some very scientific helpful information on altitude sickness acute mountain sickness what it is how to diagnose it can you treat it? Those types of things. Do supplements work? We kind of tackled all that in that episode for sure. Scrolling down, estimate hiking time. You know, yeah, that's, that's a good perfect. one. Uh, yeah, that's a good one just because um, so that I know with 40 pound pack, I, I'm, they, they're pretty slow here. So that a fit person can will pack an average two miles per hour on trail and one mile per hour off. That's that's pretty stinking slow. It's more like three on trail and two off, in my opinion. Um, but that's a good time. I mean, it's a good, there's, you're constantly doing that calculation, right? Like, okay, if I leave, um, you know, if I, you know, I want to be got a good example is, uh, opening day of deer last year, Jason and I left Boise, I think at like two in the morning, but we just reversed the math. Like, okay, we need to be at this glassing point by 7am. Um, so, you know, all right, it's, uh, you know, four mile hike. Okay. So that's going to take, you know, let's say 45 minutes. Uh, well, no, four miles would be an hour and 20 minutes or something. Um, so an hour and 20 minutes, it's a, you know, three hour drive that just start doing the math backwards. And, um, you can kind of get to that same thing for, um, you know, if you're, if you're trying to catch an evening hunt or whatever, just, just knowing how long it takes you to hike into areas, um, gives you a good ballpark on, on getting to glassing points and being, being where you want to be in the elk woods at first light, things like that. So, um, yeah, so for me, I think most, you know, if you're training with a pack weight and you got, you know, three miles an hour on trail, two off, it's pretty good estimation. Unless the off trail is, you know, really, really rugged, then yeah, you're going to slow down from that. But 
Uh, skipping down a little bit, it shows one with tips on how to put on a heavy pack, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, heavy awesome. is relative, I guess, to backpacker here because <laughs> it's it's definitely not the technique they show you're not going to do with uh, elk quarters. Um, what are some things, tips, Steve, for putting on a truly heavy pack? <laughs> Maybe some of the things you see guys do it and you're like, oh, no, that, that's not quite the best way to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just try to find anything to get the pack elevated. So it could literally just be the slope of the hill. Uh, it could be a rock, could be a log. Um, you know, it, it's it's way, way easier when you got a buddy there with you. You just get him, you know, on the backside of the pack and he lifts it up. But when you're by yourself, it gets a little bit more tricky. So off, more often than not, I find myself, you know, you're in the mountains. So I just get, get the pack on like the high side of something. I'll try to, again, just use you know, uh, maybe it's like a little eight inch, 12 inch kind of just drop in the hill where I can like put the pack on top of that and then stick, sit my butt down. Um, I get into the pack, get the belt tight, get the harness snugged up. And then I usually find the best thing is then to roll over and then, you know, get on all fours and then you can kind of stand up. Um, that's probably the best, safest tactic. You know, you can, um, I've done it kind of similar how they're showing in this photo of, of, grab the handle, lift it up, get it onto like your, you know, the top of your thigh and then, and then kind of swing through. You can do that up to like, you know, with a sandbag, I could probably do that close to a hundred pounds. Eh, that's getting pretty tough. But when you got, you know, horns and meat and gear everywhere, uh, that's pretty tough to do. So, um, yeah. And then along those simple lines, I love to, um, um, when I'm hiking out, anytime I see a, 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 a log that's a couple feet off the ground, that's at least, you know, 12 inch, um, diameter or, or circumference, no diameter, um, or bigger then I'll, I'll just straddle that and then just kind of get like, sit back a little bit and get the weight of the, have the weight of the pack sitting on that just to take the pressure off your hips there for, for even, you know, these little, a little 60 second break makes a big, big difference. Um, one thing uh, that I do often, it just, it helps a lot. So uh, how about you loading the pack? Yeah, it's the same. I'm um, just trying to use um, heights to your advantage. So being able to start where you can basically get under the pack. So as you said, whether that's the hill, getting it up on a log, I mean, that's going to be really helpful. Um, and then, yeah, if, if needed, go into kind of that all fours position and going from there. Obviously, if you're with a buddy, you can always use a partner approach and have somebody help you up and get up. Um, yeah, so it's really similar for sure. Like you said, the, the approach that they show, I would, when you were first talking about what weight is manageable with that, my first number that came up into my head was, you know, up to 80 ish pounds or something like that. Like if my training weight, a lot of times I'll put it on like they show, um, or heck a lot of times I'm starting in my truck. So I'll just get it off the tailgate, which is perfect. But, right. yeah. um, yeah, what you covered is essentially it for me as well. Their next point is prevent bonking. And so they're talking about you know, real thing. losing energy and not because of not eating enough. It is curious to me, though, they say, so it says prevent bonking. Eat at least 1,000 calories at each meal and snack every hour on long days. But prior to that, they had kind of recommended their calories were about 3,000. So that's, I'm not sure how they're getting 1,000 calories at each meal and snacking and staying at 3,000. But um, yeah, bonking for sure. I would say I don't do the thousand calories at each meal, but I am conscious of kind of that steady stream of calories, if you will. So typically, I mean, dinner is kind of the only quote unquote meal for me in a day. 
Um, breakfast is usually a smaller number of calories, but pretty consistent. And then it's just kind of snacking throughout the day, maybe a bigger snack or what you might call a lunch with a break, but it's honestly small breaks and smaller doses, keeping a steady amount of fuel. Um, you know, one thing that does come to mind on this topic is going back to like our hundred mile death hike and really being strategic on that, knowing that it was a long effort in three days and keeping energy up was going to be helpful is around the time we started talking with Kyle from Valley to Peak, but, you know, he was stressing the importance of not only calories, but what type of calories. So when are you eating fats, proteins, when are you eating carbs? And I really paid attention to that on the hike. And it made such a difference that I continue to focus on it now, where if I know there's a giant climb or some high effort coming up, I'll fuel more with the simple sugars, the gummy bears, that type of thing. Um, And typically reserve more of the fats and the proteins kind of for that end of the day recovery. Um, and that strategy yeah. truly makes a difference. Yeah. I'd definitely pick that up from that, from the hundred mile hike and really, really enjoy it. Um, it seems to work fantastic. So it's funny they're talking and then they're, they talk about having emergency Snickers on hand. Um, <laughs> so if we're not kidding about Snickers, it may be the most balanced hiking snack <laughs> when the taste fatigue hits, uh, and they're easy to get down, which is something we've talked about picking, you know, certain protein bars and stuff like that. They're so processed. It's just, just hard to suck down when you're feeling sick and bonked out but um yeah stickers is funny because i never i don't ever i don't really pack those very often just because they tend to melt and become a big mess you know Um, yeah but yeah you eat them like i guess outside of longer trips though that's kind of like one of your go-to snacks hasn't it been yeah they do as far like it's a great um i always go i I go back to the, the stupid stickers commercials where it's like um some dude becoming a diva, right? Like he gets hungry and he gets all freaking like needy and like that's me to a T, man. I yeah. get like I get hungry and got a little blood sugar and shaky and I get all grumpy and um and then all of a sudden you eat a Snickers and you feel good. Um, but no, it, there's something to that like little boost of sugar and like you said, just staying on top of it, being in front of it instead of behind it, it makes a big difference. Yeah, yeah. Snickers. Our buddy Emery from Byland talks about Oreos for him as one of the go-to's. Uh, Kyle actually from Valley to Peak talks about peanut butter and jelly for him is something that he packs. So there's all these quote unquote normal foods slash junk foods that are actually great for performance um, on these long hikes. I really like the peanut butter filled pretzels. I mean, there's so many just normal food options that aren't like these fancy bars that are just fantastic for the these types of hunts and hikes. Yeah, I think that they're probably better than some of the you know quote unquote like backpacking performance food you'd buy at rei you know like mm-hmm. just a plain old snickers bars that cost you a dollar is fantastic so mm-hmm. their next point was hike stronger at altitude and they talk about this basically breathing technique um of like very pressured breathing forcefully exhaling yada 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 and they're talking about how it's purging carbon from your body and flooding your muscles with oxygen, boosting efficiency, which sounds pretty wild. Have you ever done anything like that, Steve? Like, do you know? <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I just breathe and hike. Um, yeah, I mean, the only thing I that I can kind of relate to this um, is when I'm uh, like, if I was in a mountain bike race, um, knowing like you know i'm like on quasi flat ground and there's a a hill in front of me i do actually start like preemptively breathing deeper and harder as if i'm already on the climb right um and i do notice like that's nothing i've never 
ever thought about that from a from a hunting perspective. Um, I guess I'll do it. I'll take that back a little bit. When I'm when I'm out trail hiking and I'm like hiking for time up to the top of Table Rock or something like that, I'll, I'll kind of do the same thing. I'll at least like calm down my heart rate and get my breath dialed in before I like hit the hard portion of the hike, right? Um, but it's something I definitely would actively do while mountain biking, and then, and then also it's really easy to um, like as you're grinding through a climb, right? It's like you you kind of naturally want to like tense up and like hold your breath. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you just like focus on relaxing and, and just breathing like kind of deeper, slower, full breaths, uh, I, I do find that that helps. So, um, I guess I, in some way I do parts of what they're talking about here, but not this like specific technique. Yeah. 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 I agree that breathing is very much tied to your physiology and under stress, your breath pattern changes. And at the same time, if you focus on your breath, you can somewhat control your body's stress response in a way. Um, in terms of heart rate and things like that. So you can relate that to performance. You can relate it to even shooting. Um, you know, if you're in a stressful shooting situation, remembering to breathe or focusing on calming your breath is going to calm your overall physiology. There, there's definitely a lot to breath. I just, I haven't done their whole hiking strategy of, yeah, blowing out the candle and all that stuff, but interesting. Um, next one's talking about hiking smart on scree, or you can talk about any loose ground. I thought it was helpful here to mention that part of their quote unquote strategy for managing um, hiking on loose ground is making sure that your pack is actually secured well. Um, And that's going to help you keep your balance. It's really important to make sure, especially as you get off trail, especially as you get into steep stuff, loose stuff, especially with a heavier load, that that pack being secure to you and then the load being secure to the pack is going to make a massive difference um, honestly with each step in that type of country. Yeah, I do. In a sense, I, I follow these guidelines in 90% of the time I have the pack, like it's always tight on the belt and very, very loose in the harness. Um, and not very, very loose is like, it's not floppy, but it, it's just, there's nothing that's cinched tight. There's no pressure anywhere. Um, and this is with backpacking loads on 30, 40 pounds. Uh, but absolutely if I got a heavier weight and I get in you know, more technical terrain, kind of crawling, you know, up rocks and things like that. Yeah, just cinching up the the only thing I really need to do is just cinch up the harness straps, you know, maybe one inch on each side. Um, so just suck that in and get the pack tight. Well, the second I get through that technical portion, I'll loosen them back up. And it's probably something that at this point I just do uncon- subconsciously, right? Um, and then, um, yeah, definitely with it's one thing we've talked about with, you know, packing out heavy loads to get everything, like take your time, get that loaded, right. Get things strapped down. Uh, cause if you, you know, you just don't take that extra few minutes to get the antlers really tight and they're swaying back on back and forth on you. I got a, you know, hard to put a number on how much like more energy you're expending and how much, how much more tired you're going to be at the end of that hike. But it's pretty substantial, you know, yeah. 10 to 20% probably of extra energy going into there just to stabilize that load as you're hiking out. So yeah, super, yeah, fighting it. super important to make sure you got everything balanced and tight and yeah. Cool. They go into a few more pack tips there. I don't want to believe that point, but anything that stands out from the rest of that section on packs there, Steve. Yeah, nah, just so it talks about sore shoulders, numb fingers, achy lower back. I mean, it's all stuff we've talked about before, but uh, in general, all the weight on your hips, very little weight on your shoulders and you'll be just fine. Cool. They talk about smelling okay on a long trip. It obviously applies to us as hunters is trying to keep smell down. They 
talk about different options of, you know, taking a dip in a creek, um, rinsing out at least your clothing, letting it dry in the sun, or just the easiest option of doing the whole baby wipe shower, which is honestly my go-to. I don't, even on a week-long hunt, I'm not the guy that jumps in the creek. Typically not mm-hmm. ever going to even wash my clothes. Um, but the baby wipe shower, if you will, is it, A, it helps you smell better, but it, gosh, it feels so amazing after like three or four days, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll do, uh, if it's a nice sunny day, I've definitely been known to do, like take my shirt off and then just, you know, take, put my hands on the creek and wash my head, wash my pits, you know, just with water and then let it dry out real quick. Um, but that's the extent of it. I, I don't know if I've ever actually just gotten my underwear and jumped in a lake or a creek to to rinse out halfway through a trip. I'm sure it'd feel amazing um, once you got out of it. But yeah, never done it. Who was we did the podcast with somebody who was like, oh, it was Nathan Jones. He like he yeah, jumps in a creek right. every single day. Yeah, and that was crazy to me. Yeah, yeah, I <laughs> forgot about. I'm that. sure. Like I said I'm sure it feels great. Mm-hmm. Um, good stuff in here. The next one is on taping a sprained ankle. Obviously this goes back to having what you need to do that, um, tape or ACE wrap, something like that. But the technique is simple in there. Helpful to know. I, dude, I honestly, every time I see stuff like this, I'm like, I should really know that. Not like see it in this article and read it. I'm like, yeah, that's a good idea, but actually know this stuff. But I'm so terrible on the first aid medical stuff. I admit it. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I think I would, I'd obviously wing my way through this, but um, yeah, I don't know the actual technique to wrap an ankle. Yeah. Um, the next one is helpful for sure. I, I could see a lot of guys necessarily not knowing this or doing this, but it talks about the use of trekking poles and how on climbing, on making an ascent, you actually want to shorten the length of the poles. Conversely, when you're descending or going downhill, you want to lengthen the poles themselves. Um, so definitely good to know. It's definitely, I don't, always do this um change the length of the poles there's obviously ways to kind of set it and forget it but as i would say especially on downhill and especially with heavier loads and especially in more technical terrain i will consciously lengthen my poles so that i can extend them out in front of me put them below me and make sure i have good leverage as i'm stepping down with that heavy weight so um, if you've never looked too specifically at how long your poles should be whether that's on flat ground ascending or descending um, definitely look at that. It basically talks about flat ground. You want a 90 degree bend, um, in your elbow. And then from there, as we talked about is if you're going uphill, you would shorten that a bit. And then if you're going downhill, you would lengthen that a bit. Yeah. I, yeah. Do the exact same thing. It's, I typically have a setting that I leave it on. Uh, and the only time I would mess with that is a heavy weight going downhill. I'll, I'll, you know, make them taller for sure. One thing that I saw the picture and before reading the article and reminded me about of, um, is, uh, is taking shorter steps when you're out there, like consciously just taking shorter steps, um, makes a big difference versus like longer strides or when you're climbing just kind of more like choppy steps up the mountain. Um, that way it's like you save a lot of energy that way. Um, I think it was, might've been like Crockett. I was talking to years ago that turned me on to that technique. Um, it really freaking works. It, it works well. So just a little, little tidbit. Yeah. Crockett can move through the mountains. That's for sure. I'd listen to him. Yeah. 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 <laughs> cool. uh, what stands out next uh, for you, Steve? Uh, removing a tick. That's pretty, you know, just grab tweezers. I, you know, I just use my fingernails. I don't ever actually have tweezers with me. Um, used that plenty of times last year on the death hike for some guys. We had lots of ticks. 
draining a blister, beating the bugs, crossing a snowfield, surviving a lightning storm, something that uh, I, I honestly don't take uber serious, um, but I've talked to plenty of people that tell me I should. Uh, how about you on lightning storm? Yeah, I haven't. I haven't been in anything I've felt was super, super close or gnarly. Definitely been in storms and in the mountains, but not that whole like, oh my God, that felt like it was, you know, 40 yards away or whatever. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, I would, the common stuff of getting a little bit lower, that type of thing if, if needed. But I just, yeah, I haven't personally run into a storm that's been, I've been fearful of, I guess, right? Yeah. Like something that it talks a- about, which... You know, it says wait 30 minutes after thunder lightning before emerging from cover. I don't know that I've heard that or thought that, like that length of time specifically. I don't know if I realized that that was a recommendation to wait that long. That's a, that's a long one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, my, I've never ever, if it's stopped, you know, stopped raining and thunder and lightning's clearly like moved off in the distance. I'm not going to wait another 30 minutes. I just jumped out. So, but again, I've, I've never, I've been in plenty of, of kind of, you know, high country thunderstorms. Um, there's one specifically I remember in Wyoming with Jason where it was it was in a full draw film tour video we did quite a few years back. Uh, it was like the start of the video. It was like on top of us. Um, that was pretty intense, but I never felt like I was, you know, I guess I'm just kind of like the odds of getting struck by lightning are so small that it's like, you know, not something I'm paranoid of, but definitely like not throwing the tent, you know, on top of a peak where it's the only thing around, you know. Um, so, but I think I'd imagine, I think it was Lampers we had on a podcast once he talked about, um, having some close calls or having the lightning strike the ground, like, you know, 50 yards away from them and they could, you know, they felt it. And I think that sounded like he takes it pretty serious when a lightning storm comes in. Mm-hmm. He's probably in a lot of country and spends a lot of time where it's legitimate too. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Um, cool. Yeah. They talk about using bear spray, waiting until the bear is essentially 30 feet away aiming the spray at its head and then discharging the spray in a series of short blasts um, to create a cloud between you and the bear. So that's good, like specific tips on there. Um, yeah, I would just say episode 121 is a good uh, episode to go back to kind of in depth on the use of bear spray, the pros and cons of bear spray versus a pistol um, and some research that was done there. So that was a, a good conversation to point back to. I just talked to a customer yesterday. Um, and if, and if I'm remembering it right, 10 mm was the best all around bear pistol. And then a, a nine mm right after that. Right. Yeah. He said, yeah, basically 10 millimeter by far and away is the best. Um, and then at least on the semi-auto side, um, cause there's, there's some other options. Like if you're going with a revolver that could be up there with 10 millimeter, um, but on the semi-auto side, you know, he was basically talking about a lot of guys would go to 45 or to 40 or what have you. Um, but what they found was actually best from a balance of penetration and true performance is a heavy, hard cast nine millimeter. So something like a 147 grain solid lead. Um, and then if your gun can do it like a plus P, so an extra um, pressure round. And um, he talked specifically about, uh, gosh, Buffalo bore was definitely one of the options. They I've actually tested them. Um, not on a bear, but in terms of functioning, and that's what I've carried. <laughs> uh, Buffalo board makes them an outdoorsman specific round. So again, a hard cast 147, nine millimeter. That's uh plus P rated. Um, 
yeah so yeah to, it's surprising to a lot of guys that that was their suggestion after the 10 millimeter but they've they had some good numbers not only in research but in in firsthand encounters to kind of back that recommendation up yeah the guy i talked to he was debating he's going to colorado for an elk hunt and it was yeah he's got 40 or a nine um and he said he carries the nine all the time super proficient with it but he thought the 40 would be a better choice for black bears and i was like i think that article said nine and Especially if you're proficient with the nine, like stay with something that you're good at shooting, you know? Yeah, so, proficiency is part yeah. of it. So it's not only yeah. um, performance upon impact, but if you think of you being more accurate, you controlling the handgun, you having extra capacity potentially. Like there's other things with a nine millimeter um, that can help for sure. Giving you more rounds, being easier to control, shooting under stress, that type of thing. Um, next one, stay dry in the rain. And it talks about just avoiding overheating. Um, and the the one tip I have, it's kind of opposite of this is if I'm moving in the rain, I just get in my lightest base layer wool shirt, um, and just let that get soaking wet. You know, it's going to dry out fairly quickly. Uh, cause if you're, if you're hiking and you're wearing a rain jacket, I don't care what rain jacket it is. Um, you know, there's a, there's a difference between like still hunting in the rain and hiking, right? We're hiking, you're, 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 you're creating a lot of heat and you're going to be sweating, um, substantially on the inside. So it's, there's a, it's like no point to have a rain jacket on. You're just as wet on the inside as, as you are on the outside. Um, so just get a lightweight wool shirt. And then, um, when you, you know, when you get to wherever the storm stops or you get to a point where you stop, you just take that off and then, and then you have some nice dry clothes on the pack you could put on and then put your rain jacket on. And then when you get a chance, you, you dry out that base layer. Um, it's a technique I've used quite often and I think it works great. Like yeah, they talk about that. They're talking about layering smart. Um, you know, they mentioned in there that uh, they write two things I learned about backpacking: the secret to staying warm is layering, and a minimalist approach suited my minimalist budget. Uh, we talked just recently about kind of some of those budget clothing options, what you really need, um, and really layering smart and clothing choices without breaking the bank. So we can go back on a previous TSS episode um, just to couple ago steve i don't remember which number it was but mm-hmm. we just talked about that which is good to see in here as well yeah let's see fixing a tent pole says they don't snap often but when they do tent pole a snap tent pole can ruin a trip it talks about um basically splinting a pole with one of your stakes so if you break the pole Splint it with a stake and then just wrap that with the tape, like the grill tape we talked about previously. I don't know that I've, I've never run into a broken tent pole in the field, but I thought that that idea of kind of splinting it with a stake was a really uh, clever fix. Obviously, it's going to depend on where that break is and if that stake allows you to have the flex you need for the structure. Um, but yeah, kind of a cool one to think about. Yeah, I don't think I've ever dealt with a broken tent pole either when I'm out there in the field. I mean, it's got to be kind of have something pretty catastrophic happen. You know, it's either a really old tent or a tree falls on top of your tent. Uh, but if you're just somewhat careful about, you know, setting it up and, um, I've never broken one. I've had one bend before, but not break. So, um, yeah, it looks like a good tip. Um, talks about taking a dump next, which, you know, is everybody's <laughs> favorite topic here. <laughs> it's funny. We actually, uh, going back to previous TS episode, we, we were talking about our caribou gear, and as soon as we got off that episode, you and I both were like, oh, the one thing we didn't mention was a shovel for up there, um, <laughs> which was really, r- yeah, really helpful <laughs> for Alaska yep, yep. specifically and all that. Yeah, yeah specifically for, for that spot, because we were, 
you know, we were probably the third group of hunters to be dropped off on there and each group stays in there for a week. So, um, you tally up all the time <laughs> you got to go to the bathroom with that many guys over three weeks. Like you started to having to walk pretty far from camp just to find a, a clean place to take a poo. So, uh, <laughs> something that having that shovel just to d- dig a deep hole was, um, yeah, it's, it comes in pretty good handy. Obviously it's never pack a shovel when I'm out there, just backpack and just, um, kick a hole with my foot and go, go to town. So. Yeah, it is. Uh, this topic made me think if you guys are like new to the topic of, <laughs> of pooping in the woods, um, Andrew Skirka is someone we've had on the podcast previously and just, he does a ton of backpacking, has written books, teaches seminars, that type of thing. And if you go to his website, I think he has a multiple part, I think, even series on the best way to poop in the woods. So if you really want to geek out, <laughs> I would say go probably Google Andrew Skirka poop or something like that. And you'll probably find some really great information there. Um, uh, um, next one, set up your kitchen. You know, I, to me, this is um, basically it's cooking away from your tents to to keep bears and stuff out of your camp. And again, that's just not something on that's on my radar at all period i mean even in you know even on our caribou hunt where we're in grizzly country we still cooked inside of our tent and stuff um maybe that's silly but or stupid but yeah um i i could see some of the super um popular backpacking spots where some some bears could get trained to know that there's food and they might get a little bit more aggressive so i, I could see some of this and in their regard, but how that applies to to hunters out there in the middle of the woods, it's yeah, I think pretty overreactive to be like walking 200 feet away from your tent just to cook your dinner. Mm-hmm. Yep. Next one, they talk about choosing a campsite. They kind of have a bullet list here of really simple but helpful points. Um, obviously, it begins with picking a flat tent sized space, a durable surface higher ground they talk about cold air collecting in volley bottoms and then small rises um, of air being helpful at least 200 feet from water and trails sheltered from the wind no standing dead trees around and they say optionally having instagrammable tent door views but that's a good like quick bullet list summary on campsite selection Um, that question comes up a lot there's obviously other factors uh, specifically for hunting that you might be considering where you positioned for a glassing point in the morning or where you positioned for thermals and approach where you know game are, think they might be, that type of thing. But specifically, just like the the basic primers on campsite selection, those are some good bullet points. Yeah. I'm looking for, you know, obviously a nice flat spot, preferably dirt, not just rocky stuff, um, some good live trees around me and a good windbreak. Um, that's like my ideal camp spot, you know. Um, I don't want to be completely out exposed in the open, um just for for wind and rain if i were to kick in having the tree cover you know does a really good job of helping helping reduce condensation um and that yeah that's ideal i'm uh gosh you remember colorado no never mind you weren't on that colorado trip um colorado in 17 with the born raised guys the uh we had a wind just dead beetle tree bill beater beetle killed trees everywhere and this windstorm came up and Dude, that, that was like the one time I've ever been legit scared about where I was sleeping and had my tent pitch because we all had our own one-man tents and just all around us, you know, 360 degrees, you just, you know, every five minutes you just hear a freaking tree pop and crash down to the ground. And that was fairly spooky. One of the few times I've ever like 
in the middle of the night I got out with my headlamp and I just like turned it on the highest setting. I'm like looking at all the trees that could fall on me. Like do any of these look like they're about to fall any second, you know? Um, it's definitely something you do need to be concerned about, uh, cause it, it can happen. So, yeah, I had that a very similar experience in my very first, uh, West Western hunt, my very first elk hunt actually of it not even being on my radar, but had a high wind storm. We were just at that elevation. I think it was like the third day of the hunt where we were in a lot of aspens, ton of dead aspens and literally all night. I don't, I don't know how much I slept and we did the best we could to get out of any area we thought that we could get uh, hit by a fallen tree. But literally that night, just with the winds, we'd just hear them. I mean, it felt like every 20 minutes you'd hear a tree come down. Um, it's pretty crazy. Um, they did have a, just to clarify, they had a, at least 200 feet from water and trails in there. That's, that's you know, I'm, has nothing to do with hunters. You don't need to be 200 feet away from a water source. I think it's just limiting your impact so other hikers could walk by you and, and not see your camp and stuff. But. Yeah. Yeah. They, they limit that away from trails. Some, if you're in established areas, sometimes they do have regulations on that. Um, and then, yeah, the water sources just being your presence, um, not affecting water sources, you know, keeping things clean and free of human presence is Yeah. That's not a hunting specific thing. Kind of part of like leave no trace type principles and stuff. All right. Let's see. They have fire, which we talked a bit about. Um, it says sleep warmer. It says have a high calorie bedtime snack or even do physical activity like jumping jacks or sit-ups. Uh, talks about layering up with clothing. Talks about filling a water bottle with boiling water, wrapping it in an insulator, and then snuggling with it. Uh, worst comes to worst, spoon your hiking partner. <laughs> I would <laughs> consider that a more of a life and death situation. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I would say the the making sure you're well fed um and on calories is important um and then yeah the whole the water bottle trick you can heat up uh, water especially if you have like a nalgene and throw that um a lot of guys do it like in the bottom of their sleeping bag if they're prone to cold feet that type of thing i honestly am aware of that but i think i've done it once in my life and it was kind of unnecessary um i think with the proper sleep system i just haven't run into issues you know where i've been super cold yeah i've never done that either i know crockett often will pack those hand warmer things and and crack a big one open and just kind of keep it in his bag with him and he he loves it i just um yeah i've never never bothered the bothered the, bothered with that just make sure you got a, a sleeping bag rated for the temps that you're in and should be fine so yeah i, I do the uh, i remember another lampers reference um he talked about having a snack in the middle of the night you know, just having something ready to go to, to eat and warm your body up and still something I haven't yet implemented, but, um, can't definitely keep that one in the back of my mind for a really cold night, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the whole idea there is that when you consume calories, your metabolism goes to work to break down those calories and that your body being at work is expending energy and literally within your body is creating warmth because of that energy process, um, so that's the science behind it, not just like a, oh, full of belly equals a warm feeling type thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tying knots. I'm not a knot expert. I I'm always... not, but I will say the one they mentioned specifically is the bowlin or bowline, depending on how you prefer to pronounce that. And that is a super handy and incredibly easy knot. Um, so yeah, I looked at that one specifically, but I'm not the, the Boy Scout knot guy. Not guy. 
Um, what else we got? Sleep under the stars. Um, yeah, nothing there. Some food. Pitch in a tent. Weather. Protect your food. Nothing there. Yeah, that's it. That's the end. Is it? Yeah, I guess there's, there's a there's tips. a couple points to hit on that pitching it under weather. It just talks about, um, and this is going to be dependent on your shelter, but some tents you can essentially set up the fly first and then kind of construct the body under that. Um, so that's something to look at or play with. Obviously, it talks about setting up a sheltered area, which is obvious. And then with wind, something to pay attention to is how your um, shelter is oriented. Uh, so there are there's a few helpful things there for sure. Um, man, was that all 100? Obviously, yeah, we those, skipped some. Yeah, skipped some. Doesn't seem like 100, but it, uh, yeah, there, it long and short of it, there's some great little tips in there that I thought were very very relevant and things people could pick up from. So. And apparently, if you do these things, you're a pro. So everyone wants to be a pro. <laughs> yeah, no, I would say, awesome. too, if you guys have a pro tip, something along these lines that made you think of, oh, here's a cool little trick. Send us an email. Let us know. We can share that with listeners as well. Um, and like we've been saying, if you got questions, topics, anything like that, just send us an email to podcast at Um, Steve, anything else to hit? Anything new or noteworthy from you? Man, no, not at the moment. Just... Um... Yeah, hanging out at home, chilling with the family, <laughs> having some fun, fun times with my daughter, playing, hanging out. Uh, where we've uh, her favorite thing right now is spring's popping up as we go flower hunting. It's pretty fun actually. So yeah. I go on these little hikes, and every day there's like new flowers that, that pop up, and go pick them out. I've never been so attentive to little flowers growing on the ground. Um, so it's fun. We go out there and yeah, have a blast. So. Yeah, that's cool. There's definitely been some good, um, you know, just more more time with family here than, than I would normally spend and just t- trying to enjoy it, take advantage of it. Yeah. When we were camping just recently, we were hiking, I was telling the kids and, you know, uh, telling about morel mushrooms and how they were popping up right now and we were looking for them and my son was like, well, why? And I was like, well, you can eat them. He's like, well, I don't want to eat a mushroom, blah, blah, blah. I was like, well, some people sell them. You can actually, you know, some people pay decent money for me. But then he was all about it. He's like, all right, let's find them. Let's sell them. How much can we get? <laughs> he was all about it. A little freaking entrepreneur kid trying to sell mushrooms and start a side business. But it got him interested, uh, like so it. it wins. Yeah, perfect. Cool. Well, guys, thanks for tuning in. We will be back soon and talk to you then.